Welcome to Better Than Nothing. I'm Ken Root, a veteran of agricultural journalism. If you wish to comment on this podcast, send an email to ken at betterthannothing.com. Nothing is spelled N-U-T-H-I-N. If you're still here at the end, I'll give you that email address again. For 40 years, I've been a news reporter on radio and television and a talk show host on radio. For purposes that are somewhat ego-driven, but educational and possibly entertaining, I'd like to talk about those years and what went on, what went on on the other side of the TV screen, on the other side of the microphone. To get this information out, I realize I need color commentary and to be challenged by a person of similar credentials to my own. Therefore, I want to bring in a lady who worked with me in the 1980s at KWCH-TV and is one of the wittiest and most gracious people I've ever met. Julie Becker, how are you? Good afternoon or morning or whenever we're going to do this. You were a reporter and weekend anchor at a sorry little station in Wichita, Kansas, when I met you in the early 80s. But I think that in our times there, we witnessed one of the most amazing turnarounds in the history of local television, and I'd like to talk about that. But first, I'd like to talk about where you are today. What's your life about? My life today is very rural. I'm in rural Nebraska, have just moved into an old farmhouse, and my husband and I are renovating, fixing it up, making it livable again. So it's rather hectic these days. That sounds like a lot of work. Now, you were in the big town of uh, O'Neill, Nebraska, is that correct? (laughs) The the big town of O'Neill, Nebraska. We moved just outside of O'Neill, so that's still our hub, okay? But um, busy uh, fixing and renovating and getting this, this little house livable. The only time I've seen you in the last 30 years was at a reunion of our fellow broadcasters at KWCH Television, I don't know, maybe it's six or eight years ago, maybe longer. I met your husband. He is a veterinarian, large animal vet. So That's correct. Um, and then I also understand your mother lives in the town of O'Neill, Nebraska. That is correct. My mother is 88 years old, and she's doing great, I'm happy to report living on her own, taking care of herself, and um, she's just happy to have me close by. That's good. Well, she had you extremely late in life, didn't she? (laughs) Well, that's why I'm so young and energetic, right? (laughs) Is that what you're getting at? (laughs) Yeah. I am now uh, mostly retired, living in northeast Iowa half the year, right along the Mississippi River, and living in southwest Florida half the year, right along the Gulf of Mexico. So my wife, Jane, and I have a wonderful life, and uh, we're very blessed. I have uh, I have three grandchildren, and uh, life uh, moves on at a far faster pace. Don't you agree with that? Life oh, I, did not slow down. No, I do think so. Um, and you do sound like you have a wonderful life. Great to escape from Nebraska and Iowa in the wintertime? Well, I look at it that way. I mean, if I had stronger ties uh, to a single community or I was fixated on ice fishing or some winter sport, 
I might stick around there in the winter, but I don't have that. I moved so many times in my life. I believe that from the time that I got out of college till today, I have lived in 25 different houses and owned eight of them. It's a lot uh, of moving now, around. I've slowed down with that, and I just feel good about it. And uh, and so life goes on. But the thing that I guess I have that I cherish the most is friends like you that I've made through the years and memories. And people have told me since I was a child, I had a good memory. And I'm trying to stay with that. But while I have this good memory, I'd like to relate some things and then verify them with other people that I'm not just making that stuff up like you do in Oklahoma. I am trying <laughs> to make it to where that I am telling a historical generality. I mean, if you're going to go to Google uh, and fact check me, uh, I'm going to lose. But in general, my reality is what a human would normally remember, maybe a little bit more than the average, depending upon the event. But the thing I wanted to talk about that fits in with all of this, is the time that you and I were at what was called then KTVH Television, which was licensed in Hutchinson, Kansas, but had decided before we got there it wanted to be a Wichita station. And so it had a bigger bureau in Wichita by far than it had in Hutchinson. But both of those towns played very greatly into the activities of it in Sedgwick and Reno counties. When did you come to that station. Was it still KTVH when you got there? It was still KTVH when I got there, yes. Um, I came there in, I want to say, 1981, okay? And Ken, you and I were so privileged to be part of the growth and the change that occurred during the next, during that decade, okay? And that's the only reason why we had a reunion, because we had esprit de corps amongst us. We did. Uh, the people that worked at that station and went through the transition just had something very special to share with each other. And I tend to think, as you do, with the rest of the world. I mean, it was an exciting, amazing transformation. Well, let's start at the beginning of this. I said it was a sorry little TV station. And I make no apologies oh. about that because no. it was. How would you rate it? Well, I rate it as a number four TV station in a three-station market. <laughs> and I don't make apologies for that either because we just we had nothing. Our vehicles broke down on the way to breaking news stories. Our videotapes were overused and overused and overused. They had way too many dropouts, so our quality was poor on the air. It was just a and, – and our news director had no budget to hire decent, good people. So that's why he brought me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I don't want to leave that totally because you came in there. You just accepted, okay, this is where I am. And they had some interesting and, and rather remarkable people at the time that you got there that I'd like to talk in about a minute. But my reason for going there was that I was with another uh, broadcast entity called the Kansas Agriculture Network, 
which was started in 1981 as a radio network. And because we weren't making really enough money to survive on that, the other talent and I, his name was Rich Hull, who's been a lifelong friend ever since 1974, began doing TV in the Wichita market and getting paid a little bit for it or selling advertising for it or whatever it worked. And so we had uh, another lifeline besides the, besides that. But in the year of 1984, that radio network sold, and it moved to Topeka. And at that point, rather than straddling and being on two floating icebergs at one time, I stepped over to what was then KWCH and continued on. And that was the beginning of my true commitment to the station. But when we first got there, as it changed ownership, that was the key. There were two men from western oh, Kansas. That was Beach, the key. Beach and Schmidt. Bob mm-hmm. Schmidt was an old radio guy, very good. Has one of the best voices I think I've ever heard. But he's in management and ownership, and he just uh, he squeezed Buffalo Nichols until there was um, a poop in his hand. And he was very <laughs> conscious though, of the people and of the investments that he was making. But he uh, linked up with a rancher from western Kansas who happened to have had quite a life of his own, being himself an orphan when he was dropped off a train, as I understand it, in that area. He and was then went on orphan to, train. Oh. Yes. And have uh, this amazing life that he, he willed into existence uh, along with the two ladies, I believe it, who uh, took him in. And I'm floating out there a little ways on that story. But when I remember the beginning of this, they said, we're going to blow up the old station. Now, uh, is that true? That is literally, literally true, okay? Because they did... <laughs> He did get some dynamite and a plunger. We took it out to the field in the back of our TV station. The old logo, they made a mock-up of the old logo. Our new station manager, Ron Bergamo, put on a hard hat, and he went out and he pushed the plunger, and the old logo blew up. And then magically, the new logo appeared, and we were reborn at that moment. Now, all of this was defined by them. It's very dramatic, isn't it? Yeah, they had four (laughs) stations that they bought, and the one in Dodge City, I recall, was so bad that people referred to it as Snowflake, because you could sort of see a picture among the snowflakes on the screen. Mm -hmm. But they put all these, and Hayes was a good place. So Hayes is where Schmidt was located. And then, of course, Hutchinson was the original licensee city, and then Wichita is where most everything was happening. But I wound up going to Hutchinson because I was doing agricultural news primarily, and I became the bureau chief in Hutchinson. So we have KWCH, but I think a key to the whole thing, besides blowing it up, was the people that Bergamo surrounded himself with, and I'd like for you to comment on one whose name was Steve Ramsey. Oh, my goodness. Ron Bergamo, the station manager, found this dynamic guy and brought him in as our news director. And he was dynamic. He was a force, wasn't he? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I had known him for quite a while before you did Uh because he and I worked together in the 1970s in Oklahoma City at WKY television, and he was top-notch. He was very young, top-notch, and very aggressive in wanting to move himself through the ranks and into that news director job. I believe this is his first, I know it was his first chance to get a news director job. He was in Houston, already mm-hmm. moved from Oklahoma City to Houston at the time that Bergamo hired him and brought him to Wichita. And I recall meeting Bergamo, and I said, uh, I understand you're, uh, you're looking for a news director. And he said, yeah. And I, and I didn't know him from Adam, and, uh, Bergamo. And I said, you know, the best person I've ever worked with was Steve Ramsey. And he almost swallowed his tongue. He said, how do you know him? I said, we worked together in Oklahoma City. And he just went quiet. Well, he was dealing with him at the time. Oh, and I had no I, idea of it. See, Ken, you're telling me things that I didn't even know until this point. Go on about Steve and what as, characteristics as you thought person. he had that made us a new entity with this great potential. Okay, well, he came in as a no-BS guy. He was good to be around, but there was something about him that just told you that he meant business. And if you got an assignment from him, by God, you go out and you do your best and you come back with the very best work you can possibly get. There was no lackadaisical attitude about him. Okay, he didn't care what our ratings were when he came to start off that station because he knew that our ratings were going to improve because he was going to, by God, make sure they did. Okay, and that's you live and die by the ratings in television. You you live and die by your ratings. Okay, and like I said, we were number four in the three station market, so we had nowhere to go but up. And Ramsey came to us well aware of that position and well aware of the job that he was being tasked with. And um, he just he just took command. He took charge. And if anybody did have a lackadaisical attitude about their job at that point in time, you didn't last. No, no, they they were dismissed. The they one dismissed. thing I think that helped was that Bergamo, uh, with the full support of the ownership, said, this is like having an old dilapidated house, and we're going to remodel it. And so the equipment that I got to observe when I first got there was so bad that the TV cameras had very limited resolution. Then they also had very limited ability to record anything. And at that time, the big recording machines were two-inch videotape machines, meaning that the tape was two inches wide and it was on a reel that weighed on an hour's tape, weighed about 35 pounds. And I recall they had two of those machines, and if you recorded it on one, it would not play back on the other one. It was that bad. (laughs) So they started buying equipment for us. They went down to one-inch equipment, as I recall, which was the new state-of-the-art. But for me, in Hutchinson, when I moved there, they built a new set for the morning farm show, and they bought us three cameras, and these three cameras were just almost industrial level, but the resolution of them was good enough that I recall the co-anchor that morning, she said, oh, my goodness, I can see the pattern on the wallpaper. 
And in the past, <laughs> in the past, the wallpaper behind me looked blurred, you know, just nothing there. Except oh something you couldn't make out, and then finally you could make that out. So we we began to jump tremendously, and of course the oh, news department got new new cars. Yeah. Didn't it feel like it was Christmas every day? Yes, it certainly did. I mean, if and you Santa loved Claus your job and around. you loved, yeah, if you loved your job and you loved what you were doing, which you and I both did, as many of our uh, colleagues did, it felt like Christmas every day because. Suddenly, we just were gifted with a new fleet of automobiles that you could. We had those cute little Broncos with our new logo on them. We had yep. new cameras. We had suddenly on the air. We looked beautiful. And speaking of on the air, beautiful, we had two week two yeah. weekday anchors and one weekend anchor. I want to talk about the weekday anchors were. The more established man, Roger Cornish, who had been there for several years, he was committed to the station. I think his father had worked at the station. Yes, that's uh, correct. And then they brought in a young lady who was dynamic, to say the least, pound for pound, one of the great ones of all times, Susan Peters. Beautiful. You know, just just wonderful. Um, they searched high and low. They found Susan. We were lucky enough to be able to hire her, and the audience just fell in love with her. That was very much a key to our success. And because people watching television, they don't notice maybe so much the little things like the, your quality of the, you know, the quality has improved. You know, your picture has improved. But they do notice their anchors, and they fell in love with Susan. She was uh, she was good from the beginning. You could tell she could get a little rattled very early on, but she was able to get it together. I recall a story I know she would laugh at that one evening, you know, early on, they had she and Roger on the set, and they opened the news, and she said, good evening, I'm Roger Cornish. And he said, no, you're not. I'm Roger Cornish. <laughs> and she said, you're right, I'm Susan Peters. <laughs> That's exactly how it went. It was so cute. And, I mean, you'd almost think that they did it on purpose just for a laugh, but they did not. But Roger was one of the wittiest people I've ever been around, and he always was quick, quick on his feet with a quick comeback. He said, no, you're not. I'm Roger Cornish. When I would have been likely to say, and that makes me Susan Peters or whatever, you know, but Roger just made it so funny. And then Susan was laughing and she said, you're right, I'm Susan Peters. Now, it was so cute. It was one for the ages. This would give you the indication that they were what many people call uh, anchors, blow dried, but they were just the opposite. Uh, Susan could get totally into a story. Susan could sell you anything that she talked about on the air, and she was an extremely good interviewer. And she could really get down to it with people, make them comfortable, and then get them to just just blurt out everything they knew mm -hmm. um, and and handle it so well. And she was always supportive. I mean, she it was not an act. It was no. real. And, and no, she's real. Today, she's genuine. It's still today what she does. She is extremely genuine, 
kind, caring. She cares about people. And um, still today, she's still working with people, working with kids, um, kids in foster situations. Uh, she's helping them get adopted into their forever homes. That's what Susan does, and she loves yeah. it. Now, there was a weekend anchor that went along with this, and that was you. That was and me. And you were able to, you, you had a, a, a lesser crew, perhaps, because not everybody worked weekends. Some of us worked a story that we would leave you for the weekend. How many newscasts did you do on the weekend? Uh, we did two. One at uh, 5.30 or 6, and then one at 10 o'clock. Saturday night, Sunday night. Yeah. And uh, you prepped for those, and you had a crew for those. But then you had three more days a week that you worked. Were you a reporter primarily those days? I was a reporter in those days. I wanted to tell you that in the, right after I graduated from college, I went to a very small station in Rapid City, and that's where I learned how to be a photographer as well, because we didn't have two-person teams. You went out, you shot your own story, and you reported your own story, and you you shot your own stand-ups and everything. But yeah, that's that was, in the trade that's called a one-man band. A one-man band, that's exactly right. And I value that experience so much. I was only there for one short year, but I learned so much in that year, and and every reporter should learn how to shoot, really. Well, just to appreciate what oh. you're after. And um, you need to know what you have when you get back to the station and you go into that editing booth. You have to know that you've got the shots that are going to match your words. I came out of a station in Oklahoma City uh, where Ramsey had been and where Ramsey learned to shoot, uh, and we had really a class set of photographers uh, Daryl Barton, who was National News Photographer of the Year, I believe three times, was there. Yeah, uh, only, only comparable at the time to Larry Hatterberg, who was in Wichita at Cake Television, which was a competitor to Channel 12. Mm-hmm. And I learned from them how to shoot, although I wasn't even in their league. And then I learned how to write and edit from a man by the name of Bob Dotson. And Bob Dobson was only there through from for two and a half years that I was there. But I soaked up everything he did. He won a, a big-time Emmy uh, the second year that I was there, and that took him to NBC where he stayed for 40 years plus. Yeah. And so I came in with that, that shooting background uh, of video, of film to begin with, honestly, and then video. And then I had what I feel was the the strength with Ramsey. I had the guts to write what I felt in a story. And rather than write a story that was just the newspaper style, I wrote from my heart and Ramsey liked it. And because he liked it and because we had the background we did, I mean, he even came to my home in Oklahoma once and helped us move. Uh, he was almost my, my age. It was just a tremendous trust that we developed between us that paid off later on. What do you remember of your either anchoring or reporting that you would share with us? Well, once I introduced Jim Schmidt as Jim <laughs> Shit on the air. He thought it was funny, by the way. He did. Everybody thought it was funny, but it actually happened, and it's still 
making the circuit on, you know, those reels you put together of bloopers. So anyway, I said, and now joining us from that noisy stadium is Major Jim Schitt. Uh, Schmidt. <laughs> and that that's, it just went from there. It took on a life yeah. of its own. Well, that, that, that was a single moment in time. But uh, didn't you go to Hollywood and do some... Uh, stories yeah. on some of the talk, uh, some of the of the uh, shows that we watch at Primetime Access. See, our lead-in to our news was Vanna White and Pat Sajak doing Wheel of Fortune, and it was an extremely popular show. Okay, mm-hmm. so it was our lead-in to our news, so we depended on that to be a, an extremely popular show. The powers that be would invite the affiliate stations, which we were an affiliate at that time, to go and visit and make a, a trip out of it and make a, make stories to bring back to our local viewers. So I got lucky and was chosen for that trip. Jeopardy! was also a lead-in with Alex Trebek. So we were invited to come out, spend some time with these people, be on the set, and just make interesting stories for our local viewers. So I got to go with um, my photographer, Jeff Hardiman, and we went out and we just had free reign to be on the set of both of those shows of Jeopardy and of uh, Wheel of Fortune. And it was so much fun. I mean, all people could talk about was Vanna's clothes. What's she going to wear tonight? Isn't she wonderful? So we went in, into her dressing room with her, went through her closet, looked at all these beautiful outfits that she was wearing. What are you going to wear tonight, Vanna? And who does your hair? And just, you know, sit around casually and just visit with her. It was so much fun. And we got the same access with Alex Trebek and with Pat Sajak. So much fun. We had free reign. We could go anywhere. We could shoot anything. And so we did our best in... I think we were there for three days in Hollywood and just took pictures of everything and uh, came back and presented that for our viewers. That was very fun. We're going to take it to how the station moved from number four in a three-station market to number one mm-hmm. because we did that in less than two years. And we but, all did it together. It was such a ride. Interestingly, you talk about Jeopardy. You talk about Wheel of Fortune. There was another show that came on at the time, Oprah. And so all three of those shows were on in the afternoon coming into or out of our newscast. So it did give us an advantage of those people who were watching CBS, which we were an affiliate, to be able to also watch our news. And that was an advantage. But I believe that the key to our newscast and our, our success locally was that as you said, we would go anywhere, do anything, and everybody got on the team. And the interesting thing to me was it wasn't just the talent. It wasn't just the reporters and photographers. It was the engineers as well and the promotion people. And the everybody whole station had to turned be on into one unit. Yeah, never worked right. anywhere that was even close to that before. As a result, and you never will that, again. But as a result of that, and also partly because the other two stations – had not had to consider any competition from us for a long time, so therefore they felt like, hey, we don't uh, need to worry about them. We didn't even Uh, count. (laughs) We took number one in the market 
and um, it was uh, it was it's an amazing ride. I think the keys to this were the serious nature of the things that we would do. And if I could, I'd like to tell you the most important one I think that I was involved in, and I really shouldn't have been a part of it. Before you even start, I think you I think I know and remember uh, what you're going to talk about. It was the TWA hijacking that occurred in June of 1985. And we were in the newsroom, saw that this TWA flight had been hijacked by terrorists in um, Athens. And it was being taken somewhere else. We weren't sure where, but at that point, we then got word there were four people from Hutchinson that were on that plane. They were members of a family that were the Peels, and mm-hmm. they were in the beauty supply business, uh, mother and father, son and daughter-in-law. They had won a trip, and they were trying to get home, and they switched over to this flight because their previous flight had been canceled, and as a result, they wound up on that plane. So we start getting these reports of what's happening to everybody and people are scared to death and they're identifying that a person has been killed. We don't know what to do other than start trying to find any lead we can. And of course, everybody in the news department turned to every source they could find to get this. As it turned out, in that activity of that day, Mrs. Peel, uh, who was a, a nationally known speaker, by the way, a very cute little lady, very dynamic, was one of the first people to let off, be let off the plane. And so as Mrs. Peel got off, he felt, you know, a little relief. And then pretty soon they let her husband off the plane after they had taken it one more stop, I believe, to Algiers. And then they wound up in Beirut. And in Beirut, they only kept a small number of the younger men. So they had let uh, the Peel daughter-in-law off before that time, and kept Bobby Peel. So Bobby was left as a hostage for over two weeks. I'm watching this, Julie, just as an observer who does farm news and backed up anything I can, and you had a lady who took the lead in your news department by the name of Julia Rockler. Julia, I wonder still if you'd a good tell friend us, of mine. I wonder if you'll tell us about her involvement of this and perhaps any twists and turns you can think of. Uh, I can add a little bit, Ken. Julia was an extremely aggressive reporter. Okay, She was any news director's dream come true because if you assigned her something, she was like a bulldog. She would not let go. I mean, she sunk her teeth in and she would find. Julia did some wonderful reporting for us. And actually, she taught me a lot. Um, we're still good friends, by the way. She uh, lives now in Washington, D.C., or near that area, and um, we still visit each other and, and mm-hmm. see each other all the time. But I learned so much from her. Um, because she was so tenacious, um, she wasn't the most popular person in the newsroom, okay? Because she put her stories and her work above friendship or any 
um, you know, mm-hmm. kind of yeah. niceties that we had going on amongst each other. Um, she just was a no BS person, just kind of like her news director. And right. so and, and we had the to pair of that. them, the pair of them locked horns during the period of this time. And it was because Julia and Richard Tillery, who was our executive producer in the newsroom, yeah. were going to get married <laughs> and they were getting married and it turned out to be on the same weekend that they let Bobby Peel go <sighs> in Germany. And so as we come up to this, and I believe this was on Wednesday, our news director, Steve Ramsey, goes out to Julia Rockler and he said, Julia, what are you going to do? You're supposed to get married on Saturday. And she and a photographer by the name of Carl Wiebe were ready to buy the tickets and go as soon as we got a date that we could get into Germany. And she made the comment to him, I am going to have someone stand in at my wedding because I'm going on this story. <laughs> That's Julia. That is her in a nutshell. And Ramsey, as I understand it, looked at her and said, no, you're not. You're off the story. And she just went ballistic, but he walked back into his office and he said, who's got a passport? The only person in the newsroom who had a valid passport was Susan Peters, who's the anchor. They can't afford for her to leave. Who else has got a passport? And somebody said, "Um, well, uh, Ken Root has been doing quite a bit of traveling for ag stories Maybe you have a passport, yeah. So Ramsey calls me at like 2 in the afternoon. He said, Ruth, do you have a passport? Yes. You're going to Germany. I said, (laughs) tomorrow. I said, what? Tomorrow I'm going to Germany. That's right. Julia's off the story. You and Carl are going tomorrow. And this was when the announcement was made that they were letting these hostages out and we would be able to see them like two days later. So at that point, he gave me the credit card and the authority to buy two $2,500 business class tickets that would take me from Wichita to St. Louis and St. Louis to Frankfurt, Germany. And we would be then on our own chasing this story. We'd have the support of CBS because they had one full floor in a hotel at the airport that they had turned into literally studios and editing rooms. Mm -hmm. And off we went. And my wife is, you know, watching me go by, oh, my God, is this real? And I didn't know whether it was any more than she did. But we took off the next day. We got to St. Louis. Yeah. In retrospect, it couldn't have been a better match because Mm -hmm. Ramsey knew he could count on you, right? Because of your past experience with each other, your friendship, um, you've worked together. Ramsey knew he could count on you. And so there it was. But you knew also that you had to perform. You had this. You were a little bit out of your element, perhaps. But you knew that this was a big deal, and you were being, you know, challenged at this point. Well, I didn't know if I could count on me, but I was known for doing soft stories, not hard stories. Right. Up to that. Up to that point. Mm-hmm. But. During the time that these hostages had been held, 
the Peel family came home, except for their son, and they were very outgoing, and they started working with us. And their day in and day out on the air with us made us fast friends. And so I recall being in the studio um, with them and telling them that the next day I was going to go over uh, along with their other son and Bobby's wife, whose name I do not know. And we were going to, as the four of us, the photographer, myself, Bobby's brother, and Bobby's wife, we were going to get on that same flight. Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Peel, little lady, stood up. And she came over to me, and she said, there's something I want you to give to Bobby as soon as you see him. And I said, what is that? And she grabbed me and hugged me. And that was it. So, you know, we're all crying, and uh, we leave. Um, I recall that when we got on the airplane, we had an interesting awakening, and that was TWA um, – walked up to my photographer who was carrying his camera, and he said, Sir, would you put that in the overhead and leave it there the entire flight? And we said, okay. When we sat down, I realized that we were on the flight with a number of these hostage families. They were in first class and business class, and a number of them, absolutely hated the media coverage that they had been given to that point. They had been chased, harassed. They were not public people. Where we had the situation with the Peel family that they wanted to be on TV as much as we wanted them to be on TV. And so here we were starting to visit with these families without a TV camera, without a, without anything other than just talking to them. And we learned a great deal. And, of course, they were just torn up over this, just like the Bobby Peel's wife was, and wanting to get over there and get their loved one back and get home and not have any hassle. So we get to Germany. We're coordinating with brother and wife, and they said they're going to drop us off at this hotel, and that's where we'll be. And we understand that when they bring Bobby back from Wiesbaden, after they had gone through a couple of days there uh, with just uh, – physicals and, and making sure they were okay, that that he would be dropped off in front of that hotel. So sure enough, we're there. We haven't, we never slept. And they got off and they just ushered them right into the hotel. And of course, if you were a TV crew, they slammed the door in your face. And uh, so we couldn't go in and this is pre cell phone days. So we had no ability to do anything except, uh, I believe Carl went into the lobby without anything and asked them to call the room of the Peels and tell them we couldn't get in. And so Bobby's brother came down, opened the door, and told the security people, he said, these people are with me. I want them in our room. And we got to walk in the hotel and go upstairs <laughs> and walk in the room with Bobby who's just been reunited, reunited with his wife. And this is access like I've, you just don't, this just doesn't happen. No. That is access like you cannot believe. And that's what you live for if right. you are in TV news. I stuck on my hand and I introduced myself because he had no idea 
of any of the coverage that had been going mm-hmm. on for the last two weeks while he was being held. And I said, Bobby, I have something for, for you from your mother. And he looked at me and he said, all right. And I went over and I hugged him. Mm-hmm. And that uh, brought the emotions to the surface for everybody. And uh, he sat down and he began talking to us. And once we had the first interview with him, I could look at my photographer and, and just look at him and go, you know, we have succeeded. We have done what mm-hmm. they've set us on a long string to do so yep. far. So we got this interview with him. And in it, he told us that he never felt that threatened, but he said that the hostage takers, which took them somewhere in Beirut and kept them, began to develop a bond with them. And one night, these guys said, would you like to drive a tank? And he said, we weren't going to tell them no to anything. So, yeah. So he said, we went out and drove a tank. And he said, they had drugs everywhere. They offered us cocaine. They offered us other stuff. And he said, I was scared of that more than anything else because these guys high on something, you know, might mm-hmm. do something really stupid. And he said, uh, it was just amazing. They were carrying grenades. They had a tank. They had weapons everywhere. And then they were able to be and released and move away from them and come back to, you know, civilization. Bobby's wife It's an was amazing a, story, Ken. It's an amazing she story. She was a basket case, though. His brother was cool, um, and his brother was a facilitator, to say the least, for us. But wife wanted nothing to do with the camera. All she wanted was Bobby to go home, and I can't blame her at all. Oh, no. We were as respectful as we could of her, but he was okay to do this. And I said, could we meet you? tomorrow morning and do another story with you. And he said, okay. So they, he has time with his family. He has time to sleep. We run immediately back and we get this story fed through this CBS uplink, which was very much more difficult than it is today. And as we got this story fed, we then said, okay, you know, what are we going to do for tomorrow with them? And Carl was just following my lead generally, and we were, you know, I did grab one hour of sleep while he was editing, and that's all that we got. And so we go back to them early the next day, and I said, how about we go down to this park? And so she was game for that, and we let them go down to this park and walk around And I kept thinking, you know, this is freedom. You know, most of us don't really get a comparison of being hostage or free. And now he's been a hostage for two weeks. And now this is the first real day that he's free. And I tried to talk to him about that, which worked okay. But she just was very difficult to even get her to look at you. And uh, one time I recall they were sitting in a, a swing where both of them could fit into it. And we were 50 yards away. And I said, stay on them with that telephoto and let's see if we can get some human reaction from them. Mm-hmm. And she leaned over and put her head on his shoulder for about two seconds. And then she jumped right straight up and 
was just like she had been before. She simply could not calm herself. We then uh, How strange. kept following them through the course of that day. We did that story. We got it on. And we're moving into the night. And so... Ken, I have one question at this point, okay? I'm hearing this story almost like I'm hearing it for the first time, really. I'm hearing some details that I didn't know. But I have to ask you this. I know that KWCH, our station, had the jump on this story, and we had the lead on it. Did the other two stations in the market send people? Were they even trying anymore? Or were they just downplaying it or what... Well, I mean, did locally, you take and KSN? Locally, they didn't cover it at all because we had this field right. tied up. Right. Uh, I mean, they, they chose that they were only going to talk to us. Um, uh-huh. However, as I walked into my studio one day uh, during the course of the time that uh, he was being held hostage, my studio in Hutchinson, Kansas, here's Roger O'Neill from NBC. Ah. And and I look, I knew Roger, and and he had a photographer with him, and I said, "What are you doing here?" And he said, "Well, we've decided that this uh, family uh, here in Hutchinson, Kansas, which is a good ten-hour uh, drive from Denver, is going to be our local hostage family." So NBC went so to we them have and talked to national them. coverage now, and they got national coverage on the NBC station in town. But we're a CBS but, affiliate. That's right. But we can <laughs> let them use our studio anyway. You know, oh. we, uh, I was, I was cordial enough that we're I the mean, good they, were hurting, they were hurting me. Uh, but as we finished up that last day, Julie, uh, we wound up staying up 38 hours straight and coming down to the final push, we get one more story on for the six o'clock news and uh, we could do direct phone calls back, and I called Ramsey, and I said, well, Ramsey, you got that. Um, we're going to go get some sleep. And he said, and I'll delete the expletives, I didn't <laughs> send you over there to sleep. And I said, but it's, <laughs> it's midnight. It's now, you know, it's, we were six, six and seven hours ahead. I said, it's almost 1 a.m. He said, uh, give me one more story. I don't care what it is. Give me one more story. And so I turned to my photographer and I said, man, I'm just going to have to write this and I'm just going to have to stand up on the roof overlooking the airport and I'm just going to voice the whole thing. So I went to this lady who was uh, the one in charge of the uplink and I said, "Uh, can I feed another story? And she said, well, they're going to pull the plug here in just a little while. But he said, she said, I can tell you it's a thousand dollars if you do. And so I I kind of froze. I stood there, and I hear screaming in the hallway. And here comes a CBS crew from St. Louis. That's what I call an owned and operated station. And they said, we found our hostage family. Uh, Open the channel. Open the channel. So they run in, and they said, we want to do a feed. We've got video of this family. We've been looking for them for two days here, and we finally found them. We're in Frankfurt, Germany. And she turned to me, and she said, you've got 45 minutes to be ready to feed that. And she said, I'm going to buy an hour. We'll pick it up, and the last 15 minutes, if we get rid of these guys, who she did not like, is yours. (laughs) So I ran out. I wrote my piece. I practiced it a couple of times. 
and then we shot it. And Carl ran back down there with the tape and gave it to her. And the story was just basically from us getting there until we left. And I thought, you know, I need some kicker for this because this is a good news story, really. I mean, dismissing all the other things around it, all these hostages that we knew were safe. Uh, they were going to get on a plane here in like four hours and go home. And so I said, uh, and we haven't seen much of the country since we've been here, but we think they're all rich because they drive German cars. <laughs> and and that was the end of it for me, and I signed <laughs> off. And she said, where did you come up with this crap? And uh, the, the lady that was doing the feed and uh, smiled. And so off Carl and I go to a hotel that we have secured, but we've never slept there. We slept for about 13 hours, and then we got up, and we headed to the airport, and they put us in first class because we had that high-dollar ticket, and they flew us home. And in the interim time, of course, the other flights that the Peel family had gone home with had been able to fly out that next morning, and the networks had early morning television coverage of that, and then when they landed, and I believe they flew them directly into Hutchinson, Susan and Jeffrey Hardeman, the photographer you were speaking of, yeah. uh -huh. were there, and they covered that live. And that was a hoot because live meaning you had to have long cords to be able to oh, yeah. get out on the tarmac and be able to then have engineers who were beaming your you by microwave back. And we got the entirety of it put together, and but we all see, came we home. We did all that because because we were we wanted to be the best because no job was too big, right? Yeah. Everybody was on board. But Everybody rowing in the same direction does mm -hmm. get you there faster too. So it it it's just exactly what you said. It all came together. Uh, I think the leadership we had and the support we had from the owners down to the general manager down through Ramsey and then everybody in the station. Um, it did not last as such. Uh, Steve left uh, about a year and a half later, maybe less than that. We rolled that station from third to first in the market, and he became a very valuable commodity. Oh, yeah. I believe the next place he went to tripled his salary from what he was there. He wound mm -hmm. up in Raleigh, North Carolina, a WRAL. And I actually started trying to think about following him around the country and a few of our reporters did Dave McDaniel, not a bad person to hit your wagon to really ex except that he moves so much <laughs> McDan McDaniel wound up going to the station in Daytona Beach Florida where he was still there and he's still there mm -hmm. and then who was the overnight guy that was a little quirky but he also um, wound up uh, I think you're right yeah he would go to sleep with three scanners on. Yes, yes. Uh, and he never That's missed Tom. anything. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I can't remember his last name. But he went there, and I think he just retired from that station. But Ramsey moved to several other stations all over the country. And I sadly say that as much as I loved him, he self-destructed. He died unnecessarily after a surgery in which he would not stay in the hospital long enough for it to heal. He and so he, he he almost had a death wish, it seemed like. But he was a magical person in, in our careers. And this is just a little 
snippet of what took place at this station yeah. at that time. I'll have to ask you something at this point before we get right. too far away from it. All you ever got from Ramsey as far as you did a good job or something was an attaboy. Okay? He called Pretty it much. He called it an attaboy. You didn't get a lot of praise. You didn't get a slap on the back. You didn't get really not too much from him. Just get on to the next thing, right? Did you get an attaboy when you got back from Germany? What did he say to you? Well, as I recall, I looked at him, and he came over and shook my hand and roughhouse hugged me, and uh, he said something to the effect of, Everybody did a hell of a good job. And it was like, all right, now what are we going to do next? Yeah. And the intensity was such that he he could not stay in the moment. I told the general manager when Steve was leaving, I said, Steve is not a finished carpenter. Uh, He roughs it in and he makes it sound and then somebody else has got to finish it. And I was hoping that, that that would be the case, that we'd become, you know, a, a competitive station uh, in the market, of which we were, and remained a competitive station, but never at that level of intensity. You, you in, in my view, Julie, you just can't take it that high and hold it. You can take it that high to get you where you're going, but you've got to idle back down to where that you can all uh, survive. Well, and it's like I said. It's like I said really early on. We were so far down, we had no place to go but up, right? Yeah. We had and nothing we got to lose. Confusion of money and everything. It was just, it was only up, 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 up. But you, as you just said, you could only go right. so far up, and then right. you know that things right. change. Well, as far as I know, everything we told you folks is. The reality is we remember it uh, with uh, the level of accuracy that you can still have after uh, almost 40 years. Julie Becker-Owens, you can look back at this with pride. Uh, I look back at it with great satisfaction. And I'd like to talk to you again about other areas because you have an idle back. You're still politically wired. Uh, yeah. You still have this great voice and great energy. So could we uh, could we consider, if the money's right for you, of course, to do another one of these? <laughs> the money is right for me, okay? Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I have lots more to talk about, and I would love it, Ken. And I hope, and I do believe, that you did give your audience something better than nothing. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. I hope you stayed awake for most of it and liked what you heard. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send an email to ken at betterthannothing.com. Nothing is spelled N-U-T-H-I-N. If you can't remember that, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. As I now turn 73 years old, I've decided to have two kinds of days, good ones and great ones. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.